In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Ricky Quintana joins us today on Money Tales. For most of her adult life, Ricky has been haunted by a vivid image of a woman in a flower sack dress sitting under a bridge with a shopping cart. That woman is the personification of Ricky's bag lady syndrome, and she recently came to terms with it. This fear stemmed from a chaotic childhood where Ricky couldn't rely on the adults in her life to do what was needed to take care of her. But with maturity and focus, Ricky came to realize that no amount of money could cure bag lady syndrome. It was a hypothetical problem and not a real problem she faced. Hi, this is Cami. Ricky was a self-described good girl, achieving straight A's, attending Stanford Law School, and then working for large prestigious law firms and their Fortune 500 clients. In 2014, she took a blind leap of faith and founded Hoon Arts Fair Trade, building a U.S. market for the handicrafts from Tajikistan, and now working with artisan groups in three Central Asian countries. For all of the success Ricky's had so far, it was surprising to hear her say that it's been in the last year that she's felt financially safe and secure. The key for Ricky was to remind herself of all the things in her life that make her feel secure today, and to realize the bag lady fear is a holdover from her childhood. Ricky has an intriguing story. Here are three Money Tales conversation topics she brings to life. First, how powerful mindset is to our financial health. Second, how entrepreneurship requires persevering through repetitive failures. And third, how emotional reactions are usually assigned to Ricky that the problem isn't related to the money. It's about something deeper that she needs to investigate. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, under our conversation with Ricky Quintana. Ricky Quintana, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. To get our conversation started, will you orient us to your life by giving us an overview of your journey, focusing on two to three pivotal moments who really make you the person that you are today? My childhood was, in retrospect, pretty chaotic. Before I started school, I lived with my great-grandmother in southern Oklahoma. She was already in her 70s, I think, when I was living with her. I wasn't clear why I was living with her instead of with my mom and dad. I'm not sure I ever really found out why I was living with her. But when I started school, I came to New Mexico to live with my mom and my stepdad and my four other siblings. My parents were too young and inexperienced to get married and have kids, but they did anyway. They both came from lower income, working class families. There was a lot of stress and a lot of kids. From the beginning, 
My mother had five kids by the time she was 27, and my dad was a year younger, and when he married her, she came with two kids, and they had three more right away. They both came from families that had a lot of anger management and domestic violence issues, and they carried those into their marriage. There were substance abuse problems. There were domestic violence problems. There was a lot of chaos and fear and uncertainty in those early years. I responded to that by being the perfect child. I never broke the rules. I was a straight A student. When I got a little older, I used to refer to myself as the white sheep in a family of black sheep. I was the rule follower. I was the good girl. Basically, it carried through my whole life. In college, I studied languages. I loved intercultural communication. I thought it was so magical to be able to communicate with somebody in a different language and learn about their culture. It was just fascinating to me. It instantly grabbed me and never let go. I spent my junior year in Ecuador on a student exchange program, lived with a family. It was a fabulous experience. But I saw a lot of what was happening with multinational corporations working in the developing world. And I came home convinced that I didn't want to be a part of that. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do with a language degree. I knew I didn't want to work for a multinational and take advantage of people who couldn't afford to be taken advantage of. I didn't want to be a translator. I didn't really want to be a teacher. So I looked around. I know, I'll go to law school. I'm good at research and writing. And everybody says you have lots of options if you have a law degree. It was a very secure field. It was a very secure future. One of the things that came out of the chaos of my childhood was that I vowed to be very independent and not count on anybody else. I would take care of myself. So I went to law school. I went to Stanford partly because I got in and they gave me enough financial aid to actually attend. It was a different experience in that I went to public schools, K through 12 and undergrad, and most of my colleagues, my peers in law school went to Harvard and Yale and Columbia. And I spent about six months being totally intimidated by all these people. But eventually I figured out that most of them weren't actually smarter than me, but they had a lot more experiences than I did. When I started, I thought, I'll be an international lawyer, whatever that means. I didn't really know because there were no lawyers in my family. I hadn't done any internships with law offices. I didn't really know what I was getting into. But I did a summer clerkship after my second year with a very large, very prestigious law firm. And they made me a permanent offer. And I said, okay, I'm going to work for you. <laughs> Independence <laughs> kicked in. The pay was good. It was nice people. It was a great first professional job. I worked in Southern California, Newport Beach. If you looked out my window, you could see the sailboats bobbing. I probably looked out my window once a month because I was working all the time. There was no time for a personal life. After about four and a half years, I decided I wanted to come home to New Mexico and have a life. I got a good job offered. I went to work for them. 
it was the New Mexico version of the California firm. I worked a lot. I got paid well. It was hard to have a personal life, but I was good at it. I got to work with smart people. I got the personal strokes of feedback that I was doing a good job. I was a good girl and it worked really well. I worked full-time until my daughter was about 18 months old when my husband, who was a physicist, and I looked at our life and decided that we couldn't both work 60-hour weeks and have any kind of family life. It was clear that as the woman in the relationship, the only one that would be willing to make a change would be me. I cut back my hours and worked part-time and ended up, after a couple of years, working at a small firm that was started by other refugees from large firms who didn't want the large firm experience. Basically, I practiced law for 31 years. The thing that finally pushed me out of that environment was one of my clients who was a well-known professional. He hired us because he was mad at his partner because they were bringing in a third member of their professional group, and it meant his annual income would decline from $750,000 to only $500,000 at the beginning. It's like, I can't keep working for people for whom money is the end all of everything. It felt yucky. It felt so contrary to what mattered to me that I just said, forget it. I'm out of here. I retired with no expectation of doing anything that would earn money because I'd been able to build up my IRA and my husband had a good job and a good pension down the road. I went into exploring opportunities to reconnect with the international community in Albuquerque. I ended up volunteering with a local organization that hosts short-term professional exchange delegations. And that could be one person to maybe 25 people who would be visiting maybe only Albuquerque or maybe multiple cities. And we had a couple of delegations from Tajikistan. And I was very hands-on with the Tajikistan delegations. I planned their program. I escorted them to every appointment. One of the delegates was staying at my house. So 24 hours a day, I was with these groups from Tajikistan. The second group included a young man who works in ecotourism and handicraft promotion in Tajikistan. And I learned there was no one in the U.S. who was importing Tajik handicrafts, working to build a market in the U.S. for Tajik handicrafts. The idea just started percolating over the course of their week-long visit. And when we had our farewell party on the last day of their visit, everybody stands up and makes little speeches. And I stood up, talked about what a wonderful experience it had been. And then I found myself saying, I'm going to build a market for Tajik handicrafts. And everybody clapped. And I sat down and thought, did I just do that? Did I just commit to doing this? I'm not sure I know what to do. Oh, well, there are lots of resources. I'll figure it out. I'm good at research. I've been doing that for the last seven years of my life. That has challenged my sense of self, my identity, my value, my confidence in a way that nothing before that did. 
my legal career was very straightforward. I was smart. I did the right things. I got a job. I got money. It worked well. I worked my butt off in my business. And it doesn't just come just because you are doing a good job and you're working hard. And there are so many more things that I need to know that I didn't know before. Dealing with repetitive failure has forced me to reevaluate how I look at money, how I look at risk, who I am, and what does success look like. That's the short version. <laughs> what a journey and what a pivotal moment. Tell us a little bit more about your childhood. It sounds like it was very challenging. Just to set the money scene, were there conversations about money happening within your family? There was no education about money. In retrospect, I can see that my parents came from similar backgrounds, but they had very different approaches to dealing with money. My mom was a spender. My dad was an investor. He didn't want to spend it for anything for the family. He was willing to take great risk in his own business investments. To give you an example, he never in his life bought a new car. He liked to buy wrecked cars and take them down to a body shop in Juarez and have them repaired because it was way cheaper to do that and then bring them back. So the car I drove in high school had been totaled in the U.S., taken to Wattis, and sort of repaired. My dad was always looking for the bargain in terms of personal stuff. He was willing to take risk on a business side. When my parents got divorced, I was nine or ten, and that was the first time where the sense of scarcity was dominant. We lived with my mom. She talked about never having enough money. She believed my dad had hidden assets in the divorce. There was always fighting about not enough money. That fed into my sense of, I can't count on these crazy people. <laughs> I got to earn my own money. Your independent streak. My independent streak. But there was always a sense of fear as well. And I was thinking to the very first experience where money was part of the conversation. It was really interesting. One of my very earliest memories, I was four, five years old, and I was playing outside in my grandmother's yard in Oklahoma, and one of the little neighbor girls came over, and she was a year older than me, and her father was the local minister, and she was the mean girl of the neighborhood, and she told me, Ricky, you have to get me a penny, or I'm going to have my dad call the police and put you in jail, and I ran in utterly terrified to my grandmother saying, mama, mama, you've got to give me a penny or Charlene's going to have her dad put me in jail. And my grandmother, of course, said, no, dear, she's not going to do that. You don't have to give her a penny. It's okay. But my first experience of money is fear, security, safety. And that thread ran through my entire life. Ricky, tell us more about that. You've positioned your mom as a spender your dad as risk-averse except for with business efforts and quite frugal. How does this manifest into your younger life and how you approach money? I was always a saver. I started doing little jobs when I was in middle school. Actually, my first paid job, I was in seventh grade. 
only my mom and I lived in Oklahoma. It was after the divorce. I was going to a school where I had to pay for a bus pass. And the only way I could pay for the bus pass was to work at my cousin's drive-in restaurant. I made sodas. I ran the fountain on the weekends and got paid 50 cents an hour. And a good part of that income went to my weekly bus pass. I couldn't go to school if I didn't do this work. So it was like, you got to work hard, five hours on Saturday and five hours on Sunday. It was probably illegal child labor, but it was a relative, so it was okay. So you learned hard work was a really important key to you achieving independence? Mm-hmm. I was very risk averse. I was a saver and I was organized. I worked briefly for my dad in high school, basically being his after-school secretarial bookkeeper substitute. My dad's idea of organization was to toss all his mail into laundry baskets. And I spent the first month organizing the seven bills from this vendor and writing out checks and trying to get him to pay the bills. He was very disorganized, had no problem not paying bills on time. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to cut off our utilities. What's going to happen? There's not going to be any money. I'm not ever doing this. I need something safe and secure. When did you first feel like you were financially safe and secure? It was probably a year ago. It was a revelation to me. Since I started the business, there's been gradual self-examination and courses and learning. Part of that mindset adjustment has been recognizing that it's not reality that I'm unsafe. It's the story that I've built around it. I realized that I have what I call my inner bag lady. And there's this mental picture of this woman in a sackcloth dress sitting under a bridge, homeless with the shopping cart. And that risk was always there. Even though I've never in my life gone without a meal, except by choice, I've never not had a reliable place to stay with a roof over my head. I've always worried that I wouldn't. It's always been lurking there as, but what if? Somebody said on a podcast, I now think about problems in terms of hypothetical problems and real problems. How much money in the bank would it take me to never worry about my inner bag lady? And I realized there was actually no amount of money that could ever be in my bank account that would ever get rid of that because it's the same hypothetical problem. If the world melts down, then I turn into a bag lady. If the stock market crashes, climate change, all those existential threats. So it doesn't matter how much money is really there. It's a hypothetical problem. And that allowed me to step back and say, in terms of real problems, you're fine. <laughs> how did this inner bag lady syndrome manifest itself when your husband and you were trying to decide who pulls back work to be around your daughter more than you were as a high-powered lawyer. How'd that feel? Honestly, we didn't even discuss it. There's too much involved in running a household and taking care of a small child. And if you're both working 60 hours a week, it doesn't work. I was exhausted because, of course, I was doing most of the child care as well. So it hasn't really changed, but 
it's now discussed. In my generation, it wasn't even discussed. Of course, I was the one that was going to cut back. I made the decision and he supported it. Plus, he had the prospect of a federal pension, which has a lot of value. So I was safe because he had the federal pension and he had a good income. There wasn't any real negotiation or discussion. It was just, well, of course, the women do the family management. Was that fine with you at the time? I didn't resent it. There were times I would think to myself, why is our child my project? But ultimately, it was my choice. And it wasn't a huge resentment. I would just notice and complain to my girlfriends from time to time. And we'd share stories about that's the same in my household. Nobody really had a different experience. It's interesting that you visualize the bag lady, because I've heard many women who've been concerned about becoming a bag lady, but no one has ever shared that they have a picture of what that would be like. Actually, now she's a little girl, because I realized that it was that little girl in the chaotic childhood who couldn't take care of herself. I was too young to take care of myself. And that's what was driving that. I couldn't count on the people around me to be able to take care of myself. So now she's shrunk. The little sackcloth is too big for her and drags on the floor. And I have this mental picture of saying, it's okay, little Ricky. Big Ricky will take care of you. Big Ricky knows how to do these things. And then it's like, okay, just deal with the real problems, not the hypothetical problems. That's pretty amazing. How did you then get so comfortable being an entrepreneur? It's been a journey. It's still happening. When I started, I had some extra savings that wasn't in my IRA because, of course, I always keep my security. I invested in the business and had this idea that that was plenty. Well, it turned out not to be plenty. And it took more money. It took more time. And I didn't know how to market I needed to learn a lot of skills. So it's really two steps forward, one step back. Every time I've had to make a new investment, I hadn't already figured out and counted on. It's like, I don't know if I can do this. When I started, I wanted an instant return on investment. I wanted a guarantee. And my law degree was nice and guaranteed. You do the work, you get paid. It was very straightforward. That was what I was used to. It was very secure, very safe. Entrepreneurship doesn't work that way, at least in my experience. I have this little mental conversation. It's easier now. But when I started, I'd have this little worry session. Should I do this? Should I do that? Let me ask the experts. The experts had different recommendations. Oh my God, what's the right choice? That's a lot of money. And what if, what if, what if, lots of what ifs. Even more recently, I had to have the same kind of conversation, but the worry and anxiety level was lower in deciding whether I wanted to take on more debt with the COVID loans. It's like, I don't know, do I really want to borrow more money? That's just going to put me more at risk. That sense of integration of I'm actually okay and realizing that worst case, if I had to pay off all of my company debt right now, I could take it out of my IRA and I would still be fine. It was like, I guess this is okay. 
What's been surprising to me as an entrepreneur has really been how much of the challenge has been shifting my own mindset as opposed to taking the right strategic planning and the right tactics. I'm pretty good at the doing part. The mindset part has taken a lot more work. I've told my business coach that the mindset part has been the woo-woo part for me. I'm logical and rational. That's woo-woo. And I don't do woo-woo. What has helped me a lot on the woo-woo side is listening to a lot of podcasts and reading books about mind research that makes the woo-woo stuff real and scientific and not just woo-woo. Dragging a lot of that attitude about rational thinking. It was really painful for me to realize, for example, that my customers buy on emotion, not on rational decision-making. And it's like, well, that's not right. We all have a little woo-woo that we're relying on, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a work in progress. So Ricky, you've been listening to podcasts, you've been working with a coach. Tell us a little more about how you get mentally prepared to make some of these big decisions that you've been making and get out of that initial rational reaction and get into the mode of facing your emotions around it. The main thing that makes the difference is to step back and realize if I'm having an emotional reaction, there's something else going on. It's really not about money. It's not about how much the coaching program costs or how much the training course costs. There's something emotional going on. And if I can recognize that there's something emotional, I can mentally step back and it usually is my little inner bag lady who's worried that she's going to be sitting under a bridge. And then I can just focus on the real choices and the real problems as opposed to the hypothetical what if the world collapses kind of problems. I'm so glad you shared that, Ricky. Often we have feelings and we think it's the money, but it's not. It's something else. Tell us about being an entrepreneur today. You've been doing it for seven years now? Seven years now. I've just made yet another pivot in my future focus. I just recently realized that I spent 31 years as a lawyer doing something I was good at because I was good at it, but I never actually liked what I was doing. I didn't like the actual work. I liked community, but I didn't like the work I was doing, but I was good at it. And I thought that's what you had to do. I don't have to do stuff that I don't like to do. It may have to be done if you're running a business. I don't personally have to do all those pieces. I've been looking at what I do like to do. I've decided that going forward, my focus is going to be on incorporating more and more of the aspects of the business that I like to do and delegating the stuff that I don't like to do. And that costs money. And we always have the little conversation with little Ricky about doing that, but I'm able to do it. And the anxiety period is shortchanged. I've concluded that what I love is show and tell. I love talking to people, teaching small groups, online experiences, bring my artisans online to meet with American audiences. We've done online classes, online presentations. That's the piece that I love doing. 
I'm now focused on how can I use that to leverage my network and build a wider audience and the product sales can hopefully become more automated or delegated. And that's a huge shift for me to give myself permission to do the stuff that I like to do. That's something to be proud of. Are you doing any teaching of your artisans around money? I haven't. The most recent teaching opportunity I had, I got up in the middle of the night. I was invited to do a short presentation to artisans in Turkmenistan for an artisan entrepreneurship program sponsored by the U.S. Embassy in Turkmenistan. It was really validating for me to sit down and realize I had real value that I could share of my seven years of experience. They asked me to talk on what do U.S. buyers want? What are they looking for in the things they buy? I could just sit down and write it and share it. And they've told me they've now built that into the program. I have begun to see that what I've learned is valuable to the artisans. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. In some ways, it's uncertain what the future is going to look like for the business. And for the first time ever, that's okay, because I can fall back on I know why I'm doing it, and I know what I like to do, and I have enough experience to know that I do have a market. My challenge is finding the market. I know I have customers and clients out there because I can finally own my value and own the value of the products that I sell. For the first time ever, the uncertainty isn't sending me to bed worrying. For many years, I would wake up in the middle of the night planning, rearranging booths, and making to-do lists. I don't do that anymore. It's hard not to smile listening to you speak. Certainly, you have grown a lot as an individual and as a business owner and as a professional in international trade. We congratulate you on your success. It's so wonderful. Thank you. You shared a lot of interesting money insights in this conversation. Is there another piece of advice that you want to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in the conversation? A lesson that I have to be reminded of routinely is simplify. I love complexity. As a lawyer, it was all about complexity. I have to consciously remind myself to look for ways to simplify and prioritize. That's great advice, especially as it relates to money, because things can get complex really quickly if you allow it. That's for sure. Ricky, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I'm actually meeting tomorrow with a new bookkeeping team. The bookkeeper I've worked with for seven years, she told me in December that she's taking a full-time job and won't be able to be my bookkeeper anymore. I even recognized at the time that if this had happened even six months before, I would have, oh my God, what am I going to do? And it's like, oh, well, that means I need to get a new bookkeeper. And actually, it would be nice to have a local bookkeeper as opposed to someone who's out of state. And I actually know exactly who I'm going to hire. The anxiety of doing it, even recognizing that it's very likely I will pay the new bookkeeper more. It's just part of the process. Thank you so much for being our guest on Money Tales and sharing your stories. If our guests are interested in seeing the handcraft goods that you help import into the United States, where can they find it? 
they can go to our website at hoonarts.com. That's H-O-O-N-A-R-T-S dot com. I've been. There's some really beautiful scarves and other woven materials there. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Money Tales, Ricky. My pleasure. It's been great fun for me. Thanks for having me. What a wonderful conversation with Ricky Quintana. I love this part of our Money Tales episodes because we get to talk about our biggest takeaways from the conversation. And I'd love for you to start us off with what one of yours was. I loved when she brought up mindset, something I think a lot about, I read a lot about, I talk a lot about. Our mindset is really powerful. And she used it with respect to financial health. I think she used the words fear is automatic. I love that she's so analytical. She had to take what she called woo-woo and go into the books and study. What really transformed her was reading how the brain works and how important mindset shifts are and how they can take place for all of us when we think about any behaviors, any things holding us back, and especially around money. Having a mindset shift is really important, and it's not impossible. You just need to take the steps and be really mindful about doing that, pun intended there. I also appreciated how Ricky spoke to us about shifting from a long career in law to entrepreneurship. For 31 years, Ricky was a lawyer. She was doing a job that she could do really well, but she didn't have passion and love for it. She found something she wanted to do that was different. Most people at that point might have thought twice and just downshift and and maybe not work, but Ricky didn't do that. She made a big shift to entrepreneurship, which took her totally outside of her comfort zone and required her to face failures on a repetitive basis, which she thought was a great thing because it allowed her to learn and pivot. And she's made some amazing relationships with people outside of the country and has become an expert in her area. You could just tell from what Ricky was saying to us, Cammy, that she loves what she's doing. And I thought that story was so inspiring, especially for listeners who are thinking that they might want to try their hand at something different and starting their own business. Isn't it amazing that within the last year, while she's being an entrepreneur, taking on risk, is when she's actually come to terms with feeling financially safe and secure. It feels counterintuitive. Shouldn't she have felt that way back in this corporate career? What I found is that was her expressing that this choice and this direction is right for her. So she's now in control. She's a curious person, Cammie. I thought it was great how Ricky shared the work that she's done to get her to the spot, to be comfortable taking risks, to revisit some of the things that had stuck with her since her childhood, especially around money. When Ricky said that she was having a strong emotional reaction to something, she realized that's a sign that isn't about the money. It's not about what she's paying for something and whether the cost is going to be worth the benefit she takes away. It's about something deeper based on what she was telling us. That deeper thing usually stumps to something she experienced in her childhood. And if she makes that mindset shift that you were talking about earlier, she can get past it and she can open up, move forward and make a good decision for herself. That was a good reminder to all of us. When we have a reaction, are we reacting to the money or is it about something different? For most of us, it's probably about something different. 
Ricky is a deep thinker, a deep researcher. I love these people on our podcast who don't rely on themselves. They go and get coaches to help them get to the next level. So thank you very much, Ricky Quintana, for sharing yourself with us, your story, your insights, your vulnerability. And through you, we've learned so much. Thank you, Ricky. And thank you also to our listeners. We appreciate you listening to the podcast every week. We ask you to rate the podcast on your favorite platform, share it with others, and reach out to us if you have a money tale to share with Cami and me. You can reach us at podcasts at Asperian.com. Thanks so much, Sandy. See you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.